Take care. Bye. I just want to add my um, expression of concern that we're not together. It is, uh, it's so difficult coming into this place and, uh, and just not seeing all of you here. So pray God he uh, works quickly amongst our community to bring control that we might be back together soon. It's so critical to our lives together, but it's just such a blessing. But anyway, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask, please, exactly that, that you might overrule... Uh, in the midst of the health crisis our country, our world is facing, that you please might make it possible for uh, faith communities, Christian communities to gather again together soon and please put it on our hearts uh, to long for that time and to pray for that time. We pray now that as we uh, engage in your word that you would help us concentrate in our lounge rooms, wherever we are, as we're watching and listening, uh, that you might uh, let this time be a great blessing to us as we reflect on your word together. And we ask it in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, we come to chapter 2 of this great love story, which is more than a love story. Yes, you remember this. Uh, and my hope is that most of you are right on track, that you're, uh, you've been engaged in this whole uh, book, this whole accountant story, and, and you're ready. You're eagerly waiting for the next episode to drop. Uh, I hope that's been the case for you. It is a great story, and it's carefully written. I mentioned this last week. Uh, but the author uses thoughts very cleverly. And it just, it's just wonderful to notice these things and see how he moves the whole thing forward. Uh, at the end of chapter 1, do you remember those uh, beautiful words, verse 22? Actually, let me just give you a quick recap. Uh, chapter 1 sets us into the context of the story of Naomi, a mother who goes with her husband uh, into Moab, where she probably ought not have gone with her husband, where they ought not have gone. Two sons, they marry there. Uh, he dies, the father dies, the sons die. Naomi is left on her own with uh, two, sons, two daughters-in-law, foreign women, returns back to Bethlehem with only one of them, with Ruth, uh, who has committed herself to Naomi in the most wonderful expression of covenantal love, uh, dedication and loyalty, determination to serve her mother-in-law, whatever happens to her, Ruth. It's the most extraordinary picture of her character and nobility. Um, but at the end of chapter 1, you see Naomi uh, come to the very bottom. She's as low as you can get. She went away full, she says, but the Lord Almighty has brought me back empty. There's no hope as far as she can see. There's no future. Things are bleak and dark. But the writer tells us in verse 22 that she arrives in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. It's a beautiful way ex of expressing, watch this space. God has got something. There's something going on that we anticipate. This is a great story. But of course, it isn't in the Bible uh, because it's just a great story. God inspired someone to write, record the events of this family during the days of the judges. God inspired someone to do this because he wanted to teach us things. He wanted us to learn. And I want to suggest the big one that we started with last week is he wants us to learn about himself. What's God like? How does he work in people's lives? ordinary people, people like Naomi, 
who's no hero of the faith. What is it like for ordinary people to be in relationship with this God? That's the big message of the book. But alongside that are other lessons, secondary lessons, not as big as that, I want to suggest, but important lessons. And we're going to hit one of those today in chapter 2. It's the lesson about men and women. What is it to be a real man? What is it to be masculine? Can we even talk that kind of language? I want us to engage with that together uh, this morning. Now again, like last week, we're going to move through the text and follow the events. Uh, but unlike last week, we're going to start with some cultural background. So that when we do hit chapter 2 verse 1, you've kind of got some pieces in place to make sense of it. Let me give you quick, two quick things historically. The first one is marriage. In the ancient world, if a woman's husband dies, she's a widow, a close relative of her dead husband is to step up and marry her. Now that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, it's got a various name for it and so on, but now I know as you've been hearing this and as you've been thinking about this, I know lots of women are freaking out and sorry to say lots of men as well, because when you marry you don't just think, you're not thinking to yourself, what if he dies, what's the brother like? In fact, you don't want to even be thinking about that, but I mean that's what happened in the ancient world, it was a thing and actually it happened in Israel, it happened in other ancient Near Eastern countries as well and, and it's important to appreciate it happened because of a way of caring for women. If a woman husband dies, uh, she now has his property, you'll see that with, Ruth, uh, with Naomi, she actually has the property to sell. Um, you also get it uh, in, in the book of Numbers, I think it is, where uh, various daughters argue for the rights to the property which they get given by God. If a woman husband dies, she now has his property and his name. But if she doesn't have kids, it'll all disappear when she dies. And her clan, her family will lose the property, which is a great concern. So someone needs to step in and marry her to provide, to protect and to give her a child to carry on her and her dead husband's name and keep the family, the property in the family. Now take care here, don't measure these things about what they did in the past by your current vision of life given to us by Hollywood. In that time and in that context, it was actually an act of care for women and it worked as much. Now you might think to yourself, I wouldn't do it, it's degrading, I'd just take charge and make my way, I'm woman, I'm strong, I'm invincible. You might need to just think about that a little more. Now there's the first one, uh, marriage in the ancient world, uh, the brothers, uh, the dead man's brother, picks up and carries and can, brings the concern on. The second one is a care for the poor, it's harvesting. God gave laws to his people to provide for the care of the poor in the land and you see this in a couple of places in the book of Leviticus chapter 19 and chapter 23. God required that the landowners would leave patches of grain unharvested so that uh, poor people could come along and gather for themselves some food. It was very clever, it was a kind of work for the dole system back in the ancient world and the landowner would carry the cost and so it would be some burden upon the landowners but such was God's concern for the poor and so on. Now there's the background, uh, marriage, the little rules around marriage, Deuteronomy, uh, the uh, food laws, care for the poor, Leviticus. Jump into chapter 2 verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, 
a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. You see all those little bits of background. Again, you have this very clever piece of writing. We're going to see Boaz, this man of standing from Naomi's husband's side, a relative, in action shortly. But the author wants us to be ready for him when he comes. He's a good man. Uh, he's in the family. So he, uh, he's not a brother, but he's a close relative. He's part of the clan, the family, then the clan. So... Ruth's dead husband's family, which uh, makes him exactly the right kind of one. And he's a man of standing, he's wealthy and powerful. Point being, there's someone out there just right for Ruth. Watch this space. Then verse 2, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone who's in whose eyes I find favour. Now, she can't just go to any field. Uh, not everyone obeyed the law of Moses about caring for the poor. Only the faithful Jew would have done that, which wasn't everybody in the, in the time of Judges, you see. Now, notice this. Ruth suggests the idea, verse 2, not Naomi. Naomi doesn't even go. We don't know why. Is it because she's too old? Unlikely. It's more likely that she's actually in despair, in depression, uh, too, uh, too down to get up, as can happen. But verse 3 is when it gets really, it gets amazing. Naomi says, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. She went out, entered a field, and as it turned out, don't you love that? Jez alluded to it earlier. As it turned out, it was the field belonging to Boaz, a man in her clan who's qualified to actually do the... As it turned out. Literally, that little phrase uh, is, as chance chanced it. We'd say, as luck would have it. Of all the fields, of all the owners that Ruth could have just gone to, as it turned out, it just happened to be this one. This is, this is profound. How do you think it just happened to chance like that? Do you believe in luck? No. The world is ruled not by fate or by blind chance, but by the Lord Almighty, the Lord of loving kindness, who works all things according to the purpose of His will. All things. Not just some things, not just the big things, but all things. Not a sparrow falls from the sky except by the will of God the Father. The dice rolls. It's in the hand of the Lord. He moves the heart of the king like a river course, but every hair on your head is counted. Nothing happens by chance. All our days are ordained by the Lord God. Coincidences are never coincidences. 
There are moments when it's clear that just as it happened. But every moment is a just as it happened moment. Every moment is all of those moments. And then you hit verse 4. Just then, when Ruth happened to be in the field, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem and greets the harvesters, the Lord be with you. Notice the writer actually records for us the first words out of Boaz's mouth. You can tell a lot about a person by their first words and the author is intending us to see that Boaz is not just a powerful, wealthy man, but he's actually a godly, God-fearing Jew. And verse 5, he notices Ruth. He asks the overseer of the harvest, who does that young woman belong to? Now he notices Ruth, just be cautious here, don't overread this. One of the dangers with this book is you can easily overread lots of things. This is not Boaz checking her out. <laughs> Boaz is a man of integrity as it emerges through the book. Um, but he notices her and his question tells us something about Boaz. Who does that young woman belong to? He's not the kind of patriarchy and it's all it's evil, no, no, no. He's telling us that he's concerned for her. She's alone, a stranger, new, and he's asking, is there someone watching out for her in the time of the judges? Now the answer comes back, verse 6, that she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. Just notice too how the writer keeps reminding us of the language of Moab. Ruth is called a Moabitess, a Mo, one from Moab, the one who returned from Moab repeatedly through this book, even when it's unnecessary. We're told that uh, she, verse, chapter 1, verse 22, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite. We're told of this again and again because Moab is a dangerous place. It's a place where uh, people were opposed to Israel, opposed to pe the people of God and God himself. Uh, they were, were seductive and dangerous. Numbers 25 gives you some of the history here. Here's a very sordid history. And she's a Moabite woman. But, verse 7, she's worked hard. She's been in the field all day, morning till now, except for a short rest. Now this extraordinary thing happens, verse 8. Boaz says to her, don't go and glean in another field, don't go away from here, stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Don't go and glean anywhere else, he says, stay here. There's a repetition it's not just don't go elsewhere, don't go elsewhere, stay here, stay here, stay here with the men, the men will look after you, I've actually said that they ought not. Now again, why is he so concerned that she not go elsewhere? Is there some blossoming romance? No, the book doesn't give any indication of that, that Ruth's the one who initiates things. Why is he concerned with her? That is an important question. Why is Boaz concerned for Ruth, the Moabite? I mean, he is concerned, concerned for her welfare. He tells the men not to harm her. And he sets it up so that she can gather more and more. Verse 15, she gives, he gives orders uh, to the men to let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. He makes it possible for her to have even more and more and more. An overflow. Um, and he even invites her, verse uh, uh, 14, to come and sit at his table during the mealtime and he shares his food with her so that she even has leftovers more than she can possibly eat herself 
in one sitting. Abundance of overflow by Boaz to Ruth, which keeps right, why, why, why? Ruth herself asks that question in verse 10. Why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Why? Now, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think there's one mentioned and one not mentioned. The one that's not mentioned is a little interesting thing. Uh, if you chase up in Matthew chapter 1, I think it's verse 5, you'll find out that Boaz was raised by Rahab. Rahab was his mother or grandmother. He was aware of what it was to be an outsider through his mother. Which is just a reminder, mothers, the power of a mother in the life of their son to impact them. But verse 11, he gives the reason particularly. And he says this, look at this. I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know. I've heard about what you've done. And what you've done is remarkable. Everybody's talking about it. It's an extraordinary expression of loving kindness that you have shown. And verse 12, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. He's touched by her sacrificial love for Naomi. And notice the end of verse 12. He's aware that in doing that, leaving everything to follow Naomi, she has risked everything to now trust God, the God of Israel and his provision. Look at the end of verse 12. It's, this is one of those verses, again, worth highlighting, memorising, underlining. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, Yahweh, all capitals, do you remember? The God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May the Lord guard and protect you, the one under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Underline that and highlight it. Ruth has given up everything to serve Naomi at great cost to herself, but Boaz sees what she's truly done, and what she's truly done is put herself in the hands now of Yahweh, she has given her life entrusted herself to Yahweh. She's come in under his wings to be covered by his protection, his care. She has trusted God, the God of Israel. Do you remember, do you remember the message of this book? What's it like to have God in your life? This God. What's it like to put yourself under his wings? To leave everything to have him now hold you and care for you. What's that like? Can you trust him? If you take refuge in him. If you give up making your own way and pursuing your own life. And if you give up um, finding your own wealth and happiness in your own ways. And actually decide to seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness. Will he care for you? And what will trusting him be like? If you pour yourself out in obedience for God and not do what's self-serving and most convenient for yourself, 
will he provide? The answer this book gives is absolutely. Whatever you've sacrificed in service of God, he will repay. If not here, then one day in glory, he will. You know, the upshot of Boaz's care is that Ruth goes home loaded with food. She's carrying baskets, bags of shopping from her day in the field. In fact, it's 30 kilograms, as far as we can work out, an ephath. And her pockets are full of leftovers from the lunch that she had. And you can imagine her coming home to Naomi. And the, the story tells us that um, she comes home there in verse 18, carries it back to the town, her mother-in-law. She, she lands it on the bench, the kitchen bench, all these bags of food. And Ruth's jaws hit the ground. And then she's, oh, yeah. And there's all, pulls out the pocket of food and puts this on the table as well. And Naomi says, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Ruth tells her, verse 19, uh, about the place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz. And Naomi says, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. He is one of our close relatives. Now notice this. Naomi's head starts to come up. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. There's a shift that's happening in Naomi. He has not stopped showing his hesed, his loving kindness, his loyal, faithful love, gifting, compassion to us. He's not stopped showing his loving kindness. Who's the he in that verse? Just a little comprehension. Verse 20, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, he has not stopped showing his kindness. Who's the he? It could be Boaz. But Boaz has only just started showing kindness. Who's the he? It's God. Do you remember Naomi at the end of chapter 1? She's a very different woman now. Her head's coming up. She's beginning to see the shoots of God's blessing and recognise that there's been shoots all along. You know, whatever you're going through, it will pass. It will pass. You will be able to see God's hand. In the midst of all that you're in, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He's the God of Hesed, love. Preach this sermon to yourself. He has not stopped showing his kindness to us. I was talking to a man oh, two years ago who had just lost uh, a grandson and uh, deeply distressing. It was a terrible... They've had a, a, another daughter diagnosed with cancer and so on. Just, they'd been hit by wave after wave. And he said these words. He said... I've never thought to be angry at God because he has never stopped showing his kindnesses to us. Preach that sermon to yourself. He will lift you up in due course. And so the chapter ends 
with Ruth working in the field of Boaz, safe, provided for. But notice how it ends. Uh, this writer, he just keeps... Look at verse 23. Uh, Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley wheat harvest were finished. So that's some months. And she lived with her mother-in-law. What a great climax. She's still with mum. Now it's okay to be with mum and to be with your mother-in-law. But the writer's saying the story hasn't ended yet. There's more to come. Now there's the chapter. A quick race through. Let me pull it together and give us two things to finish with. Uh, First one. Let's start with the more, well, perhaps potentially controversial one. What do we learn? The book is designed to show us something about the key characters. These real people, Ruth and Boaz, who lived in the days of the judges. Ruth is obvious, she is very impressive. She loves with true love, loyal, faithful, tender, concern, extraordinary commitment. And that's a model presented to us. Uh, She's active, she takes the initiative, she works hard. She's no fragile, stay at home, it's too hard to do anything kind of woman. She's, she is woman, she is strong. Not invincible, but she is strong and humble. Verse 10, she's shown favour by Boaz, but she never imagines that she's owed it. She appreciates favour when favour it is. Keep noticing this picture of womanhood that the Bible presents. The Bible loves strong women who value marriage and family but who aren't defined by marriage and family or limited by them. There's women, men. What do we learn about men? In Boaz, we're shown what it is to be a real man. Now, putting it like that's meant to be provocative. Because are we even allowed today to talk about men being real men? It seems not. It seems lots are saying no. And often it comes down to a culture's hostility against power and the power particularly of men. Power can be a problem. Men have often abused it. But power's like money. It's the love of power that's the problem, not power itself. Men. Look at Boaz. He was a man with power, but there's something inspiring about the man. I've talked to numbers of women who have actually said there's something beautiful about Boaz. But I think for men, there's something inspiring about Boaz. What is it? He uses his power at every point for the good of those around him. He was never controlling or abusive or proud he was at every point gracious and generous and protective you know there are differences between men and women and pretending otherwise is hurtful it's not helping anyone in our society men are to be real men but what is it to be a real man well here it is here's my definition of what it is to be a real man it's to embrace the power that you do have And use it, not for yourself, but for others. To provide and protect, to serve and care. 
You see, Boaz used his power not only to provide for Ruth, but to ensure that no one abused Ruth. He used his strength for good, for the good of those around him. That, I want to suggest, is true masculinity. And that's Jesus, the true man. He was a man of immense power. He is a man of immense power. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. There's nothing wrong with power. It's what you do with it that matters. And the Lord of heaven and earth uses his power in humility to stoop and serve the lowly. He's the one who says that the greatest is the slave of all. He protected. Do you remember there's a couple of very significant incidences through the Gospels of Jesus? In Luke chapter 7, verse 36, uh, a, a, a notorious sinner, a woman who's notorious in sin, a, let's call it a, a sex worker. She comes repentant before him. But the men around, Jesus protects. He will not let any man abuse her. In John 8, there's a woman caught in adultery. Again, the men are want to destroy, but Jesus stands with his strength to protect her. He didn't approve of their behaviour, but he wouldn't allow men to mistreat these women either. There is true manhood. Men, man up. Become a man that uses whatever strength you have, and you have much strength for the good of others. Don't let your strength bleed away. Don't squander it on trivia. Don't live the life of a man-child, never growing up. Life isn't about us. That's real manhood. Life isn't about us, it's not about our fun, it's about serving others. Sacrificing ourselves to care and protect and provide for others. Being a man is about becoming someone others can rely on and find safety with. Can I encourage you to start making a difference? All of us have circles of influence, small and large. All of us have them. Start making a difference as a man in those contexts to give up yourself for the sake of others, to love, serve, protect and provide. Now, having said all of that, Ruth isn't written to be a man workshop, though I think it's very helpful. It's often, this is a book that's often used at women's conventions, but I'm more and more convinced it should be used at men's conventions. Um, but it's not written for that. Boaz is there to point us to something bigger even than men. Boaz, with his power, uses it to serve the vulnerable, to give to Ruth, who was, notice this, be very, grab this one. Notice how Ruth... Um, was the lowest of the rungs socially uh, in its culture she's a she's a woman a widow from moab she's a foreigner she's an alien she's a refugee she's coming to the land of israel with a history that's very different to anyone else socially she's way down boaz is way up but what boaz does is without patronising, without any sense of superiority, 
He stoops and loves and serves and gives and provides and protects. The outcast, the one that no one would touch. And in this, he presents the wonder of God. You see, who is it who was sovereignly working to bring Boaz into Ruth's life? To bring abundant blessing into her life and so into Naomi's life. Who was it? It was God. Just, it just so happened. <laughs> it, it, it just happened this way because God was working to fill Naomi up with an abundance. Boaz pitches God for us. God put Boaz there. God moved Boaz to do all that he did because God is the God who stoops to love, the God of loving kindness. And so we come to the last thing, the very big thing. What do we learn about God in all of this? Well, again, that he's the God of loving kindness, the Hesed love of loyalty and commitment and faithfulness who protects and provides for all and any who come under his wings. How do you come under the wings of this God? Through repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. By calling upon his grace and mercy, based on the merits of Christ Jesus, his death and resurrection on our behalf. By turning away from self-serving, self-seeing, to seek now the honour of God, to come back under his lordship, humbly, repentant, trusting in him. That's how you come under the wings of this God. And coming under the wings of this God, you come under the wings of a God who is the God of loving kindness, who will provide and protect and care into eternity. And this blessing of his provision and protection and care doesn't require anything beyond being his person. It doesn't require you to earn his favour. Do you know, I, I, as we talk about this kind of thing, it's almost too much to believe that such blessing could come to people who aren't worthy of it. Surely I need to do something. Surely I need to deserve it and earn it. Human instinct says that something good, so good must be earned. And yes, you look at Ruth and you think, there, yeah, it's because she was so faithful, so godly, so amazing. I mean, Boaz talks about the Lord rewarding her. Surely the message is that be like Ruth if you want blessing. No, remember Naomi. Remember Naomi. The whole book ends with Naomi filled up. Naomi, the one who went to Moab, the one who lived in despair, who wouldn't go out to work because she's depressed. The whole book is about her being blessed. And she isn't remarkable. She isn't extraordinary. Though she was humble and repentant and trusting her God. And notice, none of the people in this series of events did any super spiritual things to gain the blessing of God they didn't search out the will of God which field should I go to they didn't try and find the specific will of God about what I should do each day they just got to work they worked at living as God's people 
in the place that he put them in. Now I say this because in modern times we have a new spiritual law that seems that if you want to be truly blessed you need to be at the center of God's will and how do you get to be at the center of God's will it's not every Christian who gets blessed it's only those at the center of God's will how do you get to be at the center of God's will by searching out his specific will for you every day by listening for impressions and words and signs and so on to make sure you're in the center of God's will but notice this Ruth just chose a field that seemed best to her and as chance would chance it as it turned out she chose exactly the field that God sovereignly blessed and determined that she would choose if God has got a divine appointment for you he'll get you there you don't need to be tuned in just live the life of the humble faithful repentant trusting in God born again Christian he'll guide your steps without you even being conscious of it because the world is not ruled by blind chance it's not ruled by fate it's ruled by a personal God a God of Hesed the sovereign almighty God of loving kindness and any and all who take refuge under his wings he will bless through suffering now but in glory then he will bless notice the moments count the blessings but be aware that every moment is a God at work in your life moment let's pray our great God and Heavenly Father, we um, thank you that you are our Father through the merits of Jesus. We thank you that our world is not ruled by blind chance. We thank you that we don't have to earn your favour. But by virtue of our adoption as sons and daughters through the merits of Jesus, by our repentance and faith that brings us into relationship with you under your wings, you commit yourself to us. We thank you that you're the hero of the story. The God of Hesed love, the God who pours out abundant blessings and wants good for all those who come in under your wings. Please help us live with the confidence and trust that these things are true, that we can know the joy therefore of our salvation in Jesus' name. Amen.